Okay, let's continue with the second part. And here we're going to talk about some of the accessory organs like the liver, gallbladder, and pancreas. The liver is one of the biggest organs that we have located in the right side of the abdominal cavity under the diaphragm. And the cells are called hepatocytes. These hepatocytes are organized in a way that allows blood to go around most of them through capillaries called sinusoids. They are sinusoids, capillaries with big openings, big pores, and that allow the passage of nutrients, things that are being absorbed by the small intestine, and the liver cells, hepatocytes, will get all of them, most of them, to be processed. Proteins, lipids, cholesterol molecules, all of them will get through these big openings or fenestra in the capillaries called sinusoids. All the nutrients that were absorbed by the small intestine, they will reach the liver. How they reach the liver through the portal vein. Portal vein, which is shown in this picture, not completely blue, but a little purple here. It's coming from the intestines. It's bringing all this blood containing all the nutrients that were absorbed and distributed to all the liver. Going to the microscopic structure, we can see the hepatocytes, all of them surrounded by these sinusoids, depicted in blue because they are bringing blood from the portal vein. And here we see three things, and they are, they are, they are labeled here, three things. This blue is a branch of the portal vein, the big vein that comes bringing the blood from the intestines to the liver. And this is sending the blood through the sinusoids that go in between all these hepatocytes. The other thing that we see here is a branch of the hepatic artery. This is depicted in red because it's a branch of the uh, aorta, which brings oxygenated blood, provide oxygen to all these cells. But at this point, these two connect portal vein with hepatic artery into the same sinusoid. And if we follow this arrow, we'll see that this blood is draining to this central vein, in the central part of all this lobule that is called. And this central vein will get together now and all of them connect and drain to the inferior vena cava. That's the circulation of blood through the liver. And the inferior vena cava continues its way to the right atrium of the heart. Then we see one more thing in green. That green is called the bile ductual, which comes, and here you see the arrows circulating in the opposite direction, because these ductuals bring the bile, which is made by the cells. These liver cells will make this bile, which is green, actually, and it's uh, drains to these ductuals and then continue to weigh 
to the small intestine. These three things that we just described is what we call the portal trial. Portal trial. The branch of the portal vein, the branch of the hepatic artery, and the bile ductual or bile duct. And the liver lobule is that hexagonal shape or this group of hepatocytes arranged around the central vein. It's just the way that all these cells are organized and the blood circulates, showing us the function of the liver. <coughs> the liver what, I'm sorry? Hmm? The liver what? Lobule. Lobule. Liver lobule. This is the same thing, shown a different way. You also see the hepatic artery draining to the sinusoids and, and then all of them draining to the central vein. Now here in this picture we see how these bioductuals, all of them will drain into a, a called hepatic duct comes out of the liver, both parts of the liver. And now this bile will be drained to the small intestine. What is the bile for? We'll see in a moment. It helps with the digestion of fats. And the gallbladder is a temporary storage of bile. The bile is made by the liver and it all comes down to the small intestine. When it's drained to the small intestine, some of the components are reabsorbed by the small intestine is sent back to the liver through the hepatic portal vein. That's what we call enterohepatic circulation. That guarantees that some products excreted by the bile can be reutilized through the enterohepatic circulation. What are the functions of the liver? We can have a long list of functions. This is a table summarizing some of the main functions. As you see, they can be classified as first detoxification of the blood and metabolism of the nutrients, carbohydrates, lipids, protein synthesis, 
and secretion, secretion of bile. Bile is made here in the liver. And detoxification of blood includes clean but phagocytosis, chemical alteration of metabolism of hormones, drugs that we take, different types of medications, and excretion of some of these substances to the bile because the bile goes to the small intestine and from there it can be excreted through the digestive tube. So what is the composition of the bile is seen here? Bile is composed by a pigment called bilirubin, bile salts, phospholipids, cholesterol, and a series of uh, ions, inorganic ions, which can be calcium. And where the pigment called bilirubin comes from? That comes from the metabolism of hemoglobin. The hemoglobin, that protein inside of the red blood cells, is processed when the red blood cells are recycled. Remember we studied that the red blood cells have a lifespan of about 120 days, and after that they are removed. The old ones are removed from the circulation. Well, that happens in the spleen, basically, and the hemoglobin is metabolized into the heme group that contains iron. And that heme group will get into the liver after being converted into bilirubin in the blood. The liver will process this bilirubin, will attach to a different compound, and it's called conjugated bilirubin and it's excreted in the bile. And that's one that gives color to the bile, actually. The bile is a green, greenish substance, thanks to the bilirubin. And it comes from the metabolism of hemoglobin. And that pigment, bilirubin, when it gets to, this, to the intestine, part of it will be secreted and since it's a pigment, it will give color to the feces. The sweet generous color of the feces is due mostly by the bilirubin. Some of it will be absorbed through the small intestine, returned to the blood, and then cleared by the kidneys. And that gives color to the urine also. That's explained here. You see how the bile secretes bilirubin into the small intestine. This bilirubin is processed by bacteria in the large intestine and turned into urobilinogen, which is excreted in the feces, giving color to the feces. Some of this urobilinogen is reabsorbed, goes through the liver, and it gets to the circulation reaching the kidneys and it is created here. Urobilinogen in the urine will give color to the urine too. And when we had the lab on urinalysis, that was one of the components detected by the reagent strips, urobilinogen. The bile salts 
the bile salts. They come from acids called the cholic acid, the oxycholic acid. These acids derive from cholesterol. The point of the bile is to work as a detergent. It will break down the big drops of fat into small droplets of fat. And with that, making or giving more surface area for fat digestion. And thanks to these bile salts, That's more or less how they work. That's the chemical composition. And the bile salts, we see them working here. When the bile salts find a big drop of fat, this happens in the small intestine. When we eat some food containing a lot of fat, well, the fat will not be digested in the stomach. The fat will continue. A little bit will be digested by the stomach, but then most of it will get to the small intestine, the water. There is where the bile is secreted, so the fat will meet the bile salts there. The bile salts will break down this big drop of fat and turn it into very small droplets of fat and making it easier for enzymes to process that fat. <coughs> Detoxification of blood is perhaps one of the most important functions of the liver. It breaks down hormones, drugs, many types of medications. Some of them may be excreted to the bile. Some of them are chemically altered by the hepatocytes. Some of them phagocytized by Qfer cells, which are macrophages. They have the name of Qfer cells because they are fixed macrophages in the liver. And the liver, metabolic functions, again, all the nutrients are processed here in many different ways. For instance, the liver helps to balance the blood glucose by storing glycogen. So whenever we need glucose in the blood, we can get it from the glycogen that is stored in the hepatocytes. Or when we need to store glycogen, when we have an excess of glucose, that glucose will turn into glycogen. And that's, those processes, we, we studied them before and give names like glycogenesis, when we form and store glycogen, glycogenolysis, when we break down glycogen and use glucose and release it to the blood. Gluconeogenesis is another thing that happens in the liver, which is the production of glucose from amino acids and other non-carbohydrates. Ketogenesis, fatty acids are converted into ketones that is also made by the, by the liver. And production of plasma proteins. The liver will make all the albumin, the globulins, the transport proteins, clotting factors for coagulation, angiotensinogen, proteins in general, all of them 
most of them are made by the liver. Now, so what's the gallbladder for? The gallbladder is for storage of bile, storage and concentration of bile. The bile is not made by the gallbladder. The bile is made by the liver cells and stored in the gallbladder. Bile is continuously produced by the liver cells. And how this happens is we said the bile is required for digestion of food, especially fat food. Well, the bile has always been produced and all coming straight down and be drained to the water. But here there is a valve called ampullopatter, which keeps this closed all the time. And then all it opens when there is fat here. And so, in the meantime that we don't eat fat, we don't need bile, this is closed continuously. But the bile is always being produced by the liver, so it's always coming down. And when it finds this closed, well, the bile will be stored here in the whole bladder. That's why there's a bile here in the whole bladder. Now, next time when we eat food containing fat, this will open and the bile will come down. If we need extra bile for some reason, then we have extra here in the whole bladder. The whole bladder contracts sense more bile. People with gallstones, the treatment is to remove the gallbladder containing large stones here. And what they do is cut here. Just cut here, remove the gallbladder. These people wouldn't have no bladder now, the gallbladder. How they manage? Well, the bile is being produced by the liver all the time. The bile is still being produced. It's just the gallbladder. The storage is removed. Now, these people would have to readjust for all the diet, consume less amount of fat food, uh, enough to be managed by the bile that is made by the liver and coming down all the time. But it shouldn't be a dramatic change in the physiology of the bile production because the bile is produced by the liver. Another thing that is important to consider is that if we follow the bile duct, this duct We see that at the point of drainage here, this duct joins another duct. And this other duct is this one, the one coming from the pancreas. And both together will drain here to the papilla, which is the opening inside the small intestine. What is the importance of this? The importance is that since they share a common drainage point, if someone has a gallstone, here and it's small enough to come down the ducts, sometimes it may get stuck here, producing obstruction. Obstruction to the drainage of bile, but also the drainage of pancreas or pancreatic enzymes here. Because this duct of the pancreas is for drainage of pancreatic enzymes, very important for proteins, lipids, and carbohydrates. And this will bring problem called pancreatitis. And talking about the pancreas, the pancreas has two components, endocrine and exocrine function. The endocrine are the islets of Langerhans, which we studied in the endocrine system. Insulin and glucagon are the product. And the exocrine part 
are cells that make this pancreatic juice containing enzymes and they are released to the duodenum via the pancreatic duct. What we find in the pancreatic juice? Pancreatic juice contains, first, it is alkaline, contains bicarbonate. It is alkaline. So the pH here in the duodenum is around 6 to 7, almost neutral. And there are enzymes in the pancreatic juice, there are enzymes for all three types of macromolecules, meaning carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. We have a long list of enzymes here. The ones that we should focus are the mains, like the trypsin, chymotrypsin, the first two, lipase, and amylase. Trypsin, chymotrypsin, proteins. Lipase is for fat and amylase, pancreatic amylase, for digestion of starch to maltose. That's why we said before that the food, the carbohydrates are not digested in the mouth, but the salivary amylase. Then we resume its digestion in the duodenum by action of the pancreatic amylase. Under the microscope, we see this image of the pancreas. We see like this group of clear cells, tail cells. This is the islet of Langerhans and Bogren part. And the rest of the cells around that look dark are the pancreatic acini, which are organized in this way. These cells around a duct, all their release and enzymes here, and this duct will drain into the pancreatic duct. Notice, inactive enzymes, the same way as in the stomach. These enzymes are secreted, but inactive. Otherwise, if they are activated, they will start digesting the walls of the pancreas. That's why they have to be excreted um, inactive. And that's what we call zymogens. Zymogens are inactive enzymes. You usually have that suffix... Like we said in the pepsin, pepsinogen, well here we call it trypsinogen. Trypsinogen will turn into trypsin, which is the active form. Who activates this? A hormone made by the brush border enzyme called enterokinase. The brush border enzyme of the small intestinal cell will activate the trypsinogen into trypsin. The trypsin will activate the rest of the enzymes. And now all of them are activated. So trypsinogen and all the inactive enzymes are secreted to the small intestine where they find enterokinase and they are activated once they are in the small intestine combining with the food. Not before. They never get activated before being secreted to the duodenum. One of the problems of pancreatitis is that if there is an obstruction of the pancreatic duct, all these cells will keep releasing the enzymes. And since they remain in the pancreatic duct for a long time, they are not being released, they get activated. And they will start digesting the pancreas, giving place to a pancreatitis, which is
is a very dangerous thing. Now in this part, we're going to see how the digestive system is regulated. Review some of the nervous mechanisms, short reflex, long reflexes, at the level of the gastrointestinal tube. The gastrointestinal tube has its own activity in terms of peristalsis, segmentation, but depending on the case, it has to be modified by nervous system and endocrine system. As we mentioned before, the first one of the first things is the sight, smell, taste, or even the thought about food. We'll start the salivation and gastric secretions via the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus. But there are short reflexes, like the one we mentioned, when the foot gets in the esophagus, dilates the esophagus, and it gets contracts, and then contracts. Short reflex not involved in the brain at all. Or even the cells of the digestive to make some hormones, as we saw in the stomach, gastrin, ECL cells, that release hormones to regulate the function of the other cells in the same stomach. In the stomach, the contractions are stimulated by cells located in the wall. These are special cells that determine the pattern of contraction in the stomach that has three layers. And as that is known as intrinsic regulation. So that's inside the same stomach. But then HCL and pepsinogen are secreted as soon as proteins are detected in the stomach. So you eat some proteins, they get into the stomach, they are recognized, and hydrochloric acid and pepsinogen are secreted. But remember that hydrochloric acid is already being made by the stimulation of the senses. G cells, D cells, ECL cells will be activated and bring all the full secretion of pepsinogen turning into pepsin activated by the hydrochloric acid and all. And even we can see this in terms of time, the timeline, divided into first cephalic phase, that's the stimulation by the vagus nerves, parasympathetic, which stimulates the chief cells to make pepsinogen and the parietal cells to make hydrochloric acid. And also G cells, that stimulates ECL cells to make histamine, which are going to stimulate parietal cells to make HCL. This comprises the first 30 minutes of, of a meal. In the first 30 minutes, this is what is happening in the stomach. Then as soon as the food arrives to the stomach and it keeps arriving, then the stomach is distended, is dilated. And that will stimulate more contraction, mixing, and all the secretion is already done. And proteins will be digested, all the food will be mixed. Uh, and get ready for the next phase which is the intestinal phase. 
intestinal phases, when the food is digested by the stomach in terms of proteins, well, that food has to go to the next portion, which is the duodenum. And when the duodenum, when the duodenum receives a food that is called chyme, the small intestine will send signals to the stomach to stop the activity and relax progressively. As soon as, as long as the food leaves the stomach, the stomach gets, starts to be relaxed. And the intestine now is going to receive all the food, will detect the presence of fats, and when the presence of fats are detected in the small intestine, then this is made enterogastrum, which are going to inhibit the gastric function more. So everything is well regulated. The food gets to the small intestine and signals are sent back to the stomach to slow down and finally stop the function because the food has been digested and now it's being received by the small intestine. Some hormones named here, GIP, CCK, GLP-1, all these hormones are made by cells located in the duodenum, some of them in the ileum, and they are going to regulate all these loops that we are de describing. As soon as the food gets to the duodenum, they will send signals to the stomach to stop and inhibit the function. When the fat arrives to the small intestine, the duodenum, signals are sent, like CCK, to the gallbladder. So the gallbladder will contract and send more bile if needed. Or signals sent also to the pancreas. So the pancreas will send pancreatic juice, which is alkaline. It's going to neutralize the acidic content of the stomach that is arriving to the small intestine. This is described here. The secretin is the one that is made by the duodenal cells and sent to the pancreas. This detects the low pH and sends a signal to the pancreas to release pancreatic juice, which is alkaline. And the CCK is produced in response to fats, presence of fats in some partially digested proteins. The CCK simulates gallbladder, pancreas a little bit. And that is described here in a different way. Presence of acid in the duodenum causes release of secretin. And the secretin causes release of the carbonate secretions by the pancreatic Juice. Another way, the vapor stimulation, cranial number 10, also stimulates the pancreas to release its enzymes as in preparation for uh, digestion. And the fat presence in the duodenum will stimulate production and release of CCK, which is going to work on two things gallbladder and pancreas.
this is more related to the gallbladder, a secretion of bile. It's basically the same picture, but here it's the gallbladder is included and responding to stimulation by the CCK. CCK will cause gallbladder contraction, uh, sending more bile to the small intestine. Now let's see how this food is absorbed. First, the carbohydrates. We did the carbohydrates of digestion practice, and we reviewed this a little bit, how the starch is digested by the salivary amylase first. And this enzyme converts the polysaccharides into short chains of disaccharides, trisaccharides, short polysaccharide chains. No digestion in the stomach of carbohydrates. We say that it's too acidic. The stomach is too acidic for that. The digestion of carbohydrates will continue in the small intestine by the pancreatic amylase. And then finally, what we have here in the small intestine are disaccharides and triodes. Disaccharides and trisaccharides. Finally, the brush border enzymes will finish the breakdown of disaccharides into simple sugars, mainly glucose. Glucose is the one that is absorbed through the walls of the intestinal cells. Here we see the action of the amylase in general, salivary and pancreatic in this case. The products are these short, Oligosaccharides, maltriodes, and maltose. But those cannot be absorbed. They have to be converted into monosaccharides. Monosaccharides are absorbed. How they are absorbed? Secondary active transport. One molecule of glucose with two molecules of sodium. These are called transport. And in the other side, in the side where the cell is in contact with the blood, there will be special carriers on the membrane called glute carriers They help to transport the glucose from the cell to the blood. And since sodium is involved here, water will follow. A little bit of osmosis here. Sodium transport together with the glucose and the water follows. How about the proteins? Digestion of proteins starts in the stomach. Pepsin, hydrochloric acid. The result, short chain polypeptides. These short-chain polypeptides in the duodenum and the jejunum by the action of the trypsin from the pancreas and chymotrypsin and others will turn into dipeptides, tripeptides, which finally will be broken down into amino acids by the brush border enzymes. 
Finally, we have amino acids, some dipeptides, and some tripeptides. Those are the ones that are transported and absorbed. Free amino acids co-transport with sodium as well. Di and tripeptides are also absorbed through secondary active transport and then after hydrolyzing to amino acids in the cytoplasm of the cells. That's something different with the, with the peptides. But in any ways, the free amino acids will be moved from the cells to the interstitial fluid and then to the blood capillary. So only amino acids will get and reach the other side, the blood. And we have a diagram of this, a long chains, polypeptides, and then in the brush border enzymes, some of the peptides are absorbed as dipeptides, tripeptides, but then will be finally converted into amino acids before they are absorbed to the capillary blood. And the fats, how the fats are digested? Well, the fats we mentioned, they have to be processed by the bile. The bile helps for the digestion. And that's what we see here, the bile duct, releasing bile, mixing with the fat, and they turn into small droplets of fat. These small droplets of fat, they are easily digested by lipase, which is an enzyme made by the pancreas. And that lipase is going to break down fats into free fatty acids and monoglycerides. And these are organized into bubbles, small bubbles called micelles. Those micelles will be absorbed through the small intestinal cells, and then will be separated in the cytoplasm into their components, fatty acids, monoglycerides, which will be reorganized into triglycerides, all that happening inside the plasma or cytoplasm of the intestinal cells. And these triglycerides will bind the protein and form a vesicle called chylomicrons. These chylomicrons, now they are transported to the other side of the cell, the basal cell, the basal part of the cell, and they will be absorbed through the lacteals. They are not going to the blood. The chylomicrons, which contains the fats, they are transported to the lacteals, which are lymphatic vessels. And then they continue its way, thoracic duct, which is lymphatic vessel, draining finally to the veins, the vena cava. But they don't go through the liver like the other carbohydrates and proteins. Carbohydrates and proteins, they go to the blood, portal vein, liver. Fats go to the lymphatic system and then later go through the
proteins go from the blood to the bone to the liver. Yeah. And the thoughts go. Go to the lymphatic system first, then later there will circulate to the liver. So the lipids have a different way of being transported because they reach the blood uh, through the lymphatic system. The chylomicrons, that's the vesicle containing the fats, they get to the bloodstream and they attach to an apolipoprotein. This apolipoprotein is like the one that favors uh, the fats to bind receptors on the capillary endothelium, the blood vessels, muscles, adipose tissue. And here is where there is a lipoprotein lipase, these cells, that will release free fatty acids. Free fatty acids are used by the muscles, energy. Or the adipose cells will store these fats, triglycerides, into the cytoplasm in bubbles. Then the remaining particles will be traveling in the blood and be captured by the liver. Now this apolipoprotein and the chylomicrons, they are the ones containing molecules of triglycerides and molecules of cholesterol in different degrees. That's why this is part of what we call the lipid profile that we detect in the blood levels, or in the blood uh, tests. All these triglycerides, cholesterol, they mix with these apolipoproteins. And the apolipoproteins are of different types. Some of them are called VLDLs for very, very low density. And other type of these proteins are called LDLs, low density, where some triglycerides are removed and it still contains cholesterol. And HDL, high density, which is a different protein that trans transports cholesterol but from the tissues to the liver. How this works, we can tell that all these triglycerides, cholesterol, that the cells need, because the, need, the cells need that, are transported by this LDL, VLDL, HDL. LDL, VLDL bring all these molecules to the tissues, to the cells that need all these products. But then, once they are taken by the cells, the remains are transported back to the liver by the HDL. So the HDL transport excess of triglycerides cholesterol back to the liver. When we uh, check for the lipid profile of someone, we look for the level of triglycerides, level of cholesterol, and the level of these proteins. 
And we say sometimes, if someone has the LDL, VLDL, too high, above the normal, then we say that person is at risk of depositing cholesterol and triglycerides in the blood vessels. Therefore, heart disease and all these problems. But if the person has high levels of HDL, then we say that person is okay in these terms because HDL is picking up the excess of cholesterol and triglycerides and bring it back to the liver. So high levels of HDL kind of protects you against heart disease. But if you have high levels of VLDL, LDL, that means that you're getting a lot of cholesterol and triglycerides to your tissues. Instead, if you have high HDL, that helps you. That helps to pick up from the tissues and bring it back to the liver. Okay, some questions, some comments about this part of absorption. Now, very related to this digestive chapter, then we have the next, which is metabolism. So let's begin with some slides of this, and we'll continue next Tuesday, uh, finishing this and the last chapter, which is reproductive system. So after we describe all the digestion process and all how the nutrients are metabolized and then transported, now all these nutrients are available in our system. And basically, the liver is the one that will have this job. And the food, through all this process of catabolism, digestion, breaking down, will point to the production of ATPs, energy for the different types of cells. Carbohydrates, proteins, amino acids, fats, will all of them finally be required for ATP production. And of course, other things like protein replacement, tissues, and uh, production of other molecules. But one of the main things about the metabolism is the energy, ATP amount that we make that has to be in relation with the requirements of energy that we have, that our body needs. And that depends a lot on the degree of activity that we have. It can go from 1,300 to 5,000 kilocalories per day. We measure this in terms of calories or kilocalories. We have some numbers which are average, may be very different in every person. An average for male, 2,900 kilocalories from female, 2,100. Again, this may be very variable depending on the type of, of physical activity. But things that are important to consider is the balance. Because if we have a positive energy balance, that means that there is an excess of calorie intake. All these foods can be converted into calories if we consider how they end up in production of ATPs. And it may lead to a storage of fat, which is a good thing because it means that we are storing energy for when we need it. But if this is too positive, then we're in trouble. And the negative energy balance is that when we get fewer calories in terms of food than the amount that we need. We need more, but we're getting 
less than we need. And so our body starts using the stores and then we see practically that weight is lost. How we determine the energy that everyone needs? This is index called basal, basal metabolic rate or BMR. And it's actually measured in, uh, in one of the labs of endocrine system. We measure this with the computer and simulation, the rats. The amount of oxygen that is used by the person under a comfortable temperature, not too hot, not too cold, and 12 to 14 hours after consuming any meal. So it's a very, very basal level, meaning that's the amount of energy that you need, that your body needs, to perform the basic activities, digestion, thinking, circulation of blood, uh, muscular tone, basic, without making any additional effort. And of course, that is affected by different factors like the age and sex, body surface area, even the how your thyroid gland is working, the activity of the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland stimulates uh, metabolism by all the cells. And this is the balance that shows the balance between anabolism and catabolism, both catabolism leading to breaking down of the big molecules, carbohydrates, fats, proteins into the basic molecules to be utilized. And this goes back in the other way through anabolism because this, all these products, amino acids, sugars, fatty acids, they are used to build proteins, replace proteins, replace all tissues, make hormones, all these things that we need, our body needs. And all that is transfer of energy through all these intermediates that we studied in, cell, in cellular respiration. So it's a cycle that happens all the time, which is summarized very simple, and whatever we need is what we have to eat to keep the balance in our physiology. Well, let's see some components important substances and, uh, and molecules for the physiology um, or metabolism. Regarding vitamins, vitamins, they help as coenzymes, very important, very important. But they are regularly obtained in the diet. If we have a perfect, a well-balanced diet, we are supposed to get all these vitamins in the amount that we need. Why we need this? Well, we need that for coenzymes. If we go back to cellular respiration, you see the NADH, FADH, they come from vitamin B. Vitamin K is needed for production of clotting factors, clotting proteins. And the vitamins won't give you any energy. That's a misconception that sometimes people have. It will not give you energy. They will help for chemical reactions but it doesn't follow that you need plenty of vitamins in order to be more energetic. And as I said, if you have a well-balanced diet, you're getting all the vitamins you need. There may be some situations where 
Um, we may be at risk for some vitamin deficiency, like vitamin D, like vitamin B, especially B12, folic acid, like pregnant women, they are at risk of getting deficiency of folic acid. Uh, special physiologic conditions where we may require additional vitamin uh, supplements, but that's not usually the, um, the rule of the average. And anyways, it has to be judged individually. There are two types of fat uh, of vitamins can be divided then according to the solubility in fat or water. Fat soluble, A, D, E, K. Water soluble, especially the B complex, vitamin C and others. Vitamin B and C, they are needed, as I was saying, for the coenzymes that we mentioned, FAD, NAD, which are very important in the Krebs cycle and the uh, cellular respiration. Pyridoxin B6 is a coenzyme in the amino acid metabolism. And vitamin C, consider antioxidant because inactivates free radicals that are always made by the cells during the metabolism. And vitamins A, D, E, and K, fat soluble, the main function is listed here. Vitamin E is another antioxidant. It takes free radicals. Vitamin K, clotting factors. Vitamin D, calcium absorption, and therefore bone health. Vitamin A, regulation of mitosis, embryonic development, epithelial membranes. And we have a list of vitamins. One of the things that to mention about vitamins is what happens if we have vitamin deficiency. First, vitamin deficiencies are not common. They are present whenever uh, usually disease is present that is uh, making your digestive system not working properly or you have a chronic disease or a nutritional deficiency. So usually not having a good diet or are in starvation conditions. And some of the problems that can result from vitamin deficiency are listed in this column. Vitamin B in general are related with nervous system, like the thiamine or V1, problems of the oral mucosa, glossitis, which is inflammation of the tongue. B6 deficiency can be related with presence of seizures. B12 is related to this particular type of anemia. Vitamin C deficiency, scurvy. Vitamin D deficiency, problems of the bones, rickets, osteomalacia, which is lack of calcification of the bones. Folic acid or folate, this is related with anemia, it's a water-soluble vitamin. Vitamin K deficiency, relation with problems of bleeding. Deficiency of vitamin K uh, sometimes gives us um, hemorrhages because they are needed. Vitamin K is needed for production of clotting factors. Minerals are important. They are required in minimal amounts. And again, 
if we have if we have a balanced diet, we are guaranteed to have all this, unless some important condition is present. And they are used as cofactors, many chemical reactions. Uh, sodium, potassium are needed for many other things. Sodium, potassium for muscular contraction, uh, control of blood pressure, blood volume. Magnesium, phosphorus. Magnesium is basically as a cofactor in many chemical reactions, cellular respiration also included. And trace elements are minerals that has to be, have to be present in very small amounts. Iron as component of hemoglobin and all the rest are involved in chemical reactions as cofactors. How this metabolism of energy is regulated? Glycogen, fat, proteins. These are the basic nutrients, but they are used in a different sequence. Glycogen and fat are the main that are used for energy under regular circumstances. If there's an exceptional, exceptional circumstance, then proteins are used as energy. Like if someone is getting to starvation conditions where all the glycogen from the liver is used, all the fat, most of the fat of the body is used for energy, then they'll start consuming the proteins, the muscles, and they get very thin because the muscles are being converted actually into amino acids for energy. And all this energy coming from all the food that we get every day, glycogen, fat, and proteins. And in this chart, we have a good summary of how things work. You can see this side up here is what we have in the cells. This is the bloodstream. And this is what happens as part of the cyto in the cytoplasm and mitochondria the cellular respiration process. So this is the pool, the pool of nutrients, proteins, polysaccharides, triglycerides, which are absorbed through the circulation, digestion, and everything included here. Well, at the end, what we have in the blood is fatty acids, glycerol, ketone bodies, glucose, lactic acid, amino acids. They are taken by the cells, and all these three groups included as part of the cellular respiration for production of ATP. Now what happens actually is the balance. Mainly glucose and fatty acid will enter here for production of ATPs, but at some point the amino acids can also enter to this cellular respiration for production of ATPs. Now this is a very simple chart. This actually is more complex. There are different regulations different conditions that will favor that more glucose, fat, or amino acid enters to this process. Regarding the adipose tissue, that's tissue cells containing triglyceride storage. We call it white fat, that's a regular fat. There's a brown fat, it's a different type of fat that is only present 
in the fetal stage or very early in life, and then most of this, uh, most of the fat is white fat containing triglycerides. And there are hormones that regulate this. Adipocytes, they actually secrete hormones. These adipose cells secrete hormones that will control in a certain way the level of hunger and the metabolism. Now, the adipose cells, they develop like any other type of cell of the body, embryonic development and then growth, development, etc. But the number of adipose cells depends on the stimulation. If during childhood we have a positive balance all the time, then the body will make more adipose cells. If the energy balance is zero or 10 more to negative, then the adipose cells will not be too many. The problem with this is that when we reach adolescence, the number of adipose cells at that point will remain relatively permanent. And so if child, a child gets obese, gets adolescence and turn adult with a determined number of adipose cells, which is gonna be hard to decrease in number later on. Practical thing is that children that are overweight, if they reach adulthood in that, in that way, it will be hard for them to lose weight. Not impossible, but it will be harder than others. And looking for the other way, someone very skinny with low number of adipose cells, kids, skinny kid, let's say, gets adolescence, adult, will have fewer number of adipose cells. And they will, they will gain weight, but not that much. You probably see some people that they can eat lots of food and never gain weight. Or they gain weight, but not excessively. And that depends on the number of adipose cells many, many times. Um, now, these adipose cells can be, I mean, let's say someone's overweight from kid. Later on, they can lose weight, but it's harder because they have excessive number of adipose cells. And the other way, it's easy for these people to gain weight. They consume a little bit more in positive balance and then gain weight quickly, uh, quicker than another than other person. Uh, question. Yeah. So if you do lose weight, even though you have an excessive amount of adipose um, cells, do they reduce? Or if you lose weight, if you lose weight, yeah, if you, if you lose weight, what happens is if you have an excessive number of adipose cells, you will lose weight. But it depends on how much you have, how many of these cells you have. You can lose weight and maintain a average weight, but then you can gain weight easier than other people. Because no. Hmm? Because the number of adipocytes never, never decrease? Exactly. So that never decreases? It won't decrease. It won't decrease. What happens is the number of adipocytes, they won't store too many fat, but the number will remain relatively stable. What are those hormones or endocrine products that the adipose tissue makes? That adipokines are called. They regulate the hunger level, metabolism. Insulin sensitivity is important because they will determine how much glucose, how much fat will get 
into the cells. Uh, there are other products like tumor necrosis factor alpha um, that reduces the ability of a skeletal muscle to remove glucose from the blood. This is what we call insulin resistance. Some people, what they have is that um, the cells, they don't take too much glucose from the blood. The insulin is supposed to favor this, that the cells take that glucose. But people that have an excessive of this factor, they may have insulin resistance. So the glucose is not taken by the cells so effectively. And these people may have increased risk to develop diabetes type 2. Uh, we commonly detect people having insulin resistance, we call it, because of the level of glucose is not to the level of diabetes, but higher than average, meaning that they have some resistance for, for this uh, uh, glucose to be taken by the cells. And a long time, they may develop uh, type 2 diabetes. Leptin is another product secreted in proportion to the amount of fat that is stored. And this has a loop with the hypothalamus. And it regulates the hunger level and it's supposed to regulate the food intake in the sense that if there's an, there's an excessive or, or let's say enough amount of fat in your adipose cells, what signals are sent to the hypothalamus to inhibit hunger and consumption of more food. It's like a negative feedback loop. Also here, there are people that and this is related to morbid obesity usually. People that have low levels of leptin or leptin is not secreted properly. So even they have a lot of fat tissue, leptin is not stimulated or inhibited in the hypothalamus and the hunger center. And they just keep eating without control. That's one of the things. Because uh, morbid obesity is uh, it's a more complex problem. It's not only about leptin only. There are many other factors, including psychological factors here. Um, but this is one of the things that has been found in, in cases of morbid obesity. Uh, and also, um, it's related to the reproductive processes. The hypothalamus is the one that secretes the releasing hormones, gonadotropin releasing hormones. And women with low body fat may have this deficiency of leptin and the hypothalamus is not sending stimulus to the ovaries. And there may be an ovulatory cycles, lack of menstruation, missing periods, anovulation, there's no ovulation, one month, two months, because of this correlation between the leptin and the hypothalamus. We'll mention that again, we'll do reproductive system and menstrual cycle. So, yeah. Leptin inhibits the hypothalamus. Okay. So if there's a fat issue, adipose cells containing more fat, they will secrete leptin to inhibit the hypothalamus to stop the consumption of fat. Okay. 
Okay. No Latin is no addition on the key consumer side. So are people with high Latin more more verbal? No, it doesn't work in that way. It works in the other way. Low Latin, less stimulation to the hypothalamus, and less and that may inhibit ovulation. But it doesn't work in the other way. Um. Now, obesity, as I was saying, is a very complex problem sometimes. Not only one cause, it uh, has to be focused under many different approaches, not only the physiology, but also the psychological and sociological aspects. Uh, but true is that it is a risk factor for many conditions, including cardiovascular diseases, the main diabetes, and even sleep apnea and cancer. And visceral fat, the one that is found in the abdominal organs, let's say the great momentum, the fat around the intestines, and all, uh, is less sensitive to insulin. And apparently more visceral fat more risk to develop these conditions. There are some studies that show this. But I mean, the point is to fight obesity, including visceral fat or subcutaneous fat and all of that. But these are some observations that have been seen. And this is translated in this index, high waist to hip. Because if it's a high waist, waist to hip ratio, that means more abdominal fat, usually. And abdominal fat, not only subcutaneous, but also inside the organs. Uh, it's correlated with high risk of cardiovascular disease. And one important thing is cancer. Obesity is a risk for all, all types of cancer, not only one, all types of cancer. There are different levels that we use in BMI, which is body mass index. It's a formula that correlates the weight and height to make it standardized in comparison. Um, and according to these ranges, we define healthy, overweight, or obese. And just to show you some numbers, these are levels of um, obesity along the years. Orange, red, includes the BMI is 25 to, 9, uh, 25 to 9, 29 and over 30%. And how along the years this thing has been changing a lot. 2013, 2014. And I don't have the more updated here, but you can check it on the CDC webpage. And it's getting some improvement these last years with a lot of efforts at the level of public health. Um, but in the previous 20 years, there was an escalating in the amount of people with overweight and obesity. And this is what I was saying about the leptin. More adipose tissue, more leptin. You secrete and the leptin will inhibit, control the hunger long-term problem seen in some people with morbid obesity is 
they have reduced sensitivity to leptin. Hypothalamus is not responding to the leptin made. 